My name is Rick Kleffel. Welcome to the Agony Column podcast. We're speaking with Charlie Houston live in New York. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you very much, Rick. Charlie, I want to talk to you a little bit about your novel, Already Dead. It's a horror novel. Could you set this novel up for us? Tell us what the premise is and how the action starts to unfold. The premise is pretty pretty basic. It's a contemporary New York. There are, you know, secret vampire gangs running around that people don't know about, and most of them want to stay secret. They're beating people up and killing them for their blood, and they're, they have, you know, various wars and conflicts going on between the various gangs, and in the middle of all this, the classic noir guy is uh, Joe Pitt, is a vampire without a gang, without a clan, and the action uh, un- unfolds, is initiated by a gruesome quadruple homicide, which involves some zombies and some brain-eating and uh, some bloodletting. Tell us a little bit about your first two novels involved mostly straightforward mystery action. Mm-hmm. What brought you to write a supernatural science fictional style novel? I, fun, I think, more than anything else. I was the, the, the book, as, as with my first book, Caught Stealing, uh, Already Dead was begun uh, when I was not really seeking to, to make money as a, as a writer. I, um, I had written Caught Stealing as uh, a way to stay busy and to do something creative, and I finished it and put it aside, and I wanted to, to keep writing because I had, uh, uh, wanted to write, you know, I'd always written shorter things, but I'd enjoyed writing the novel, and I wanted to try and do something else. And one of the things that had been difficult about re- reading Caught Stealing is even though it's, you know, fairly high concept and it's uh, got a lot of action and everything, I still wanted it to have... Uh, a certain amount of verisimilitude, and, you know, without any real knowledge of police procedure and, you know, what it feels like to get shot and stuff, that was fairly difficult. And one of the things that I knew was easier was to have vampires, because <laughs> right there the rules just go out the window. So it was, uh, it was kind of a, a way to entertain myself, and so I had written a chunk of it, and then I got sidetracked by some other things that I was working on, and Time passed, and in the interim, uh, I sold Caught Stealing and a a sequel. And at some point, I had very quickly had run out of advance money and was, you know, hoping to get to work on another book as quickly as possible. And my agent told me that it was going to be difficult to sell another mystery at that that moment to my publisher, but that if I wanted to try and uh, write something in another genre, that he might be able to work something out. And he, he said, so, you know, I don't know, if you had something horror project or something you wanted to work on, and there I was with 100 pages of a vampire book sitting in, sitting in a drawer, lucky me, it turned out that uh, uh, it was something that people were interested in. And once again, lucky me, I got to, to finish the book. One of the things that you have a lot of fun with, and you do really well in this novel, is you find humor in violence. You find humor in violence all the time. How do you do that? Oh, Christ, I don't know. Part of it is, I, I'm, you know, I, my experience of life is that, you know, absurd things don't stop happening just because there's a tragedy or just because there's, you know, a disaster or because somebody is being hurt. And so there's, there's that. I think it also may just be symptomatic of, of my ignorance with of physical violence. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I'm, uh, I've been, been many, many years since the last time I threw a punch. And, uh, you know, I've never been shot at. I've never shot at anybody, any of that stuff. In trying to give the violence some kind of authenticity, you know, that 
my description of the havoc it wreaks can only go so far. And um, there's something, to me, there's something about the idea of somebody slipping on a banana peel, um, you know, as they're staggering around with a bullet in their, in their gut, that it's not only funny, but also, to me, feels really honest and, and really true. Like, like I said, I don't, think, I don't think the world suddenly, you know, the world doesn't stop when horrible things happen. And part of, you know, part of the world is funny, stupid shit happening constantly. I don't know. I don't know how much sense that makes, but that's, you know, that's the best I can do there. You seem to like to take your sympathetic characters, your main characters, and drive them to committing unimaginable violence. They become as bad or worse than the bad guys. Why do you do that? Well, with, with Joe Pitt, with the protagonist in Already Dead, it's, it's kind of a part of it is, you know, it's already, it's, it's, a, it's a given. That's the kind of character. I don't, he, I don't think there's a, there's a, in him that it's necessarily that he's driven to do these horrible things. These horrible things are already in him. And my, it, it's, as I conceive that character, he's already done before that book, first, the first page of that book, he's done much worse previously in his life than anything that he's going to do in that book. Um, I hate pussy vampires. <laughs> Joe's got a certain amount of, you know, uh, of bathos uh, in there. But I hate the, the, you know, the mopey, I can't kill people vampire, you know, it's bad, it's bad thing. I wanted to write about a vampire who's a badass. Uh, so for him, it's just part of his nature. With Henry, with the protagonist in, in Caught Stealing and Six Bad Things, it didn't, it wasn't something that I started out planning to do. I, I didn't really know where that, that first book, where Caught Stealing was going to go or but at a certain point when I was writing it, I realized that there was an arc that was developing that, that, that had to do with this change that he was going through from a, from a very regular guy who was, you know, was absolutely a lover, not a fighter, um, into somebody that, that whom circumstances was making capable of, of these acts of violence. And uh, once I recognized that it was happening, it you know, it was natural to, you know, emphasize it and make it, really make it, to a certain extent, the point of the book. I know it's different for every writer. For me, I wasn't necessarily that aware of of how, why that was happening or how it was happening. In retrospect, I look back at it, and I think there's some of my feelings about violence and what it does to people and how having, you know, experiencing violence or whether you're, whether you're committing the act of violence or whether, you know, they're happening to you, uh, transforms people and, and, and more, more to the point, killing. Whether you're a witness to it or whether you're doing it, I don't think that anybody that is remotely mentally stable goes through that experience without being profoundly changed. And another thing that, you know, and that's another thing that I hate. Not only do I hate mopey pussy vampires, but I hate uh, stories in which characters, particularly a protagonist and someone who otherwise is not inclined to violence, they commit acts of violence and there's no change in the character. Uh, or worse, there's no change in the character before they commit the act of violence. You don't see that growing. So I did that in the first book, kind of, almost incidentally, and then recognized it, you know, after the fact. And when I got the opportunity to write a sequel, I remember what I told the editor who who was interested in in the sequel. I said, "Well, look, I, I do have an idea for a sequel, but it's really the middle book of a trilogy." 
And the whole arc of the trilogy would be how Henry goes from a normal guy to to how he becomes not just a guy capable of violence, but a guy who is committing acts of violence as a as a profession and defends, you know, completely how his life is overwhelmed by the violence around him and he becomes a, a violent person. And then with a finale that revolves around whether or not he can redeem himself, whether or not there will be redemption. And that's the, the third book is, you know, is, is about, and um, in that the final book in that trilogy is about, uh, can you come back from that? You know, you, you can't be a regular guy ever again, but is there anything you can do to make up for, for what you've done? One of the strengths of your books is the dialogue. I'm wondering, how do you write it? Does it do you just write it down? Do you speak it? Do you rehearse it? I don't speak it. I don't rehearse it. Some of the dialogue, some of it spins out of control. You know, some of it is, you know, there are definitely those times where, the, you know, that the cliche that writers talk about, I'm just listening to the characters and they're telling me what the story is and stuff. And once again, every writer has a different experience, you know, and, and different process. For me, I find that that is the case uh, sometimes, and particularly with dialogue. There are, there are will be moments of in the action that suggest a line, and then things just roll from there. There are other times when I'll just I'll hear a, a line, hear somebody in real life say something that I think is interesting. Somebody, oh, Christ, I wish I could remember. Oh, this was it. Uh, somebody was, we were watching something in the, the Olympics, and somebody was either skating or, or snowboarding or doing something, and they had their background music was Bruce Springsteen. We were talking about that as a choice, and one of my buddies said, man, if you can't win to Springsteen, you can't win to nothing. And I, I had to write it down. I know that at some point I'm going to have some jamoke, you know, talking about sports or something like that, and there'll be that line. So some of these things just come from real life, and then once I have that line, sometimes I'll look for a character that might be able to speak it. Sometimes I'll, you know, I've had a couple characters that I've created based on a bit of dialogue that I thought was really strong. And then from, from writing out the dialogue, this is suggests the character and the character has developed. One of the things you do well with language is you show a great facility at creatively and humorously using the word fuck. <laughs> so tell me about this because it's a really interesting uh, uh, stylistic cha- choice and, and I think you do it really well. Uh, you know, I wish it was a choice. I, w- <laughs> I wish I could say, <laughs> but in the same way that I'm not entirely certain that a person can be taught how to write, I'm not entirely certain that a person can be taught how to use the word fuck naturally. I, you know, you got to learn it somewhere, but it, but certain, some things are just innate. I come from a family that is, you know, vulgar. Everybody from my grandparents on down on both sides of my family We've always just, you know, there's just always been a lot of raw language. I just grew up with it, and that word just rolls off my lips as <laughs> automatically <laughs> as anything. There's just nothing conscious. It's just such a, it's just such an automatic word. I think it was, I can't remember if it was Six Bad Things or Already Dead, but when I, I went to my editor for the first pass, I came back, and, you know, he's already, he's already read one or two of my books, and we spent a lot of time together, so he knows how I talk and all that, and he says, uh, Says now look, I know this book isn't going to be this, this book ain't going to be G rated, <laughs> but I did draw a line through, through a few fucks on this one. <laughs> he said I think you may have had a heavy hand, so I went. I was like, oh fuck you, dude. I mean, come on. This is 
and and reading that particular manuscript, whichever one it was, uh, I did realize that it was a little fuck heavy, and uh, some some selective editing, and I actually ended up cutting a few that that he didn't, and I just finished a first draft of a of a standalone that I'm working on that's about teenagers. And, uh, you know, teenagers just curse worse than, than anybody else. Or certainly I did when I was a kid, and most of the teenagers I hear when I overhear them talking. I went through to do my own line editing before I submitted it, and I, I don't think that there was a page in that book that didn't have at least one fuck in it, man. So uh, I had to do a certain amount of pruning, but, I you know, I'm just, I'm just foul-mouthed. I want to talk to you a little bit about the plotting of this novel. Especially okay. in terms of... There's a plot? <laughs> there is one. <laughs> I detected it underneath all the bloodshed, the violence, and the constant use of the word fuck. It's translucent, but it's in there. It, it's in there. Crap, I put a plot in? <laughs> okay, well, uh, Vampire Noir. Sure. It's been done before, but I think that you do a... a a superb job on it. So tell me a little bit, had you looked at some of the other vampire noirs? No, I'm you know, I'm not really well read in in the genres that I the genres that I write in. You know, I I've particularly horror. I've read very little horror in the in the course of there was a big, you know, glut of Stephen King when I was a teenager and I've read a little bit of Clive Barker and a lot of Lovecraft when I was a kid and, you know, Dracula and um you know, I, just a, a dot here and a dot there. Other than that, you know, I'm a big horror movie fan, so I've absorbed a lot of my horror, a lot of the horror tradition, you know, that in terms of how I think about horror comes from the movies and less from books. So I know that there are vampire noirs out there, but I haven't really read any of them, although I, although to a certain extent, I, I, I mean, Dracula is by definition gothic, but I think it has a lot of noir qualities to it although I never really thought about that until somebody asked me a question about it recently. And, and once again, it was another one of those things that wasn't a... To, to get really hardcore noir like it ended up being was not my initial instinct. You know, my originally I was definitely going to have, you know, the, the P.I. fixer character who was a vampire, and, uh, and then the story kind of built around that with the different clans. And originally there was, I was just going to have one big clan that controlled the whole the whole island of Manhattan. And then it became more interesting to break it up into all these other distinct groups. And, and as the plot started, the plot such as it is started to develop, I realized that, you know, that I was, that I was getting really hard-boiled and there would be times where I'd have Joe saying things that were, you know, really smart-alecky and, you know, doing that whole talking out of his side of the mouth and smoking a cigarette and drinking whiskey thing. There was just a, there was a point uh, where I just realized that, that it just needed to be pushed over the edge. And uh, if I was going to do it, I needed to really do it. And, and I, I picked up a couple of my old Chandler books and a couple of my old Hammets, and I read them actually while I was working on the book to really get that sensibility kind of in the back of my head. Whereas with the Henry books, I really avoid reading mysteries or thrillers while I'm working on those so that I can try and be clean of, of the influence of other writers while I'm actively working on the book. But with Joe, I, I tried very aggressively to get that old school noir into, uh, into the, into the book and to really, and to really go for it. 
so you know it's not it's not a terribly original idea and it and it is uh but it's there's a reason for that it's because it you know it comes very naturally it's you know they're it's very suited um you know the horror noir there's a certain amount of overlap there i usually compare i think in tone and the and joe's voice and uh the the already dead a chandler but in terms of the plotting and the way it's resolved at the end, I think it's. I think it's. I'm more copying Hammett's moves. With you know, there's a lot of exposition at the end, which I try to frame in a way that's entertaining, so that the reader isn't falling asleep there. But that whole you know thing of characters explaining all of these crazy plot twists and stuff is a, is a very Hammett thing to do. And that was the other thing. There was the, the plot twists were really building and building and. I was like, I knew that I needed to either lean it out or I needed to go for it, and um, and you know, going for it just seemed like a much more entertaining option. So that was that was part of how that happened. Your vampires are science fiction based rather than supernatural based. Mm-hmm. Why? Thanks for saying science fiction because they're definitely not science based. Their vampirism is supposedly the result of a virus, but anyone that knows any anything about what viruses are and how they work and all of that will immediately, you know, any of the, the pseudoscience that I that comes up in the book, they'll immediately start punching holes in this. I have a friend who's a biochemist, and he gave me some cool ideas to play with, but I, you know, was horrified when he actually read the manuscript because I knew that he was just going to, you know, uh, he was going to hate what I, and he didn't give a shit about any of that stuff, obviously. I wanted it to be over the top. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be wild and it to be a world that allowed me to go further than I can go with the straight thrillers. But I also wanted, and here's that word again, I wanted a certain amount of verisimilitude. I wanted it to be a recognizable world. And I also wanted to have to make it for, I really wanted to have this whole aspect where, where Joe is, makes fun of the traditional vampire myths and makes fun of people who are into them. However, as the books go on, and there's, there definitely is a second book, and I'm hoping to, that that'll, in the end, it'll be a series of five or six books. The, the idea that I have is that while each book will have a standalone story, that there will be an arc that goes through the entire series that is the mystery of just exactly what is this this virus that makes them vampires, and is it actually you know just a virus, or is there a supernatural um, aspect to it? And that's going to kind of be a, a thing that I, I I play with, and I already know what the answer is. Uh, the question will be whether or not somebody buys the books and I get to resolve it. Tell us a little bit about retooling the mafia for undeath. Well, maf- the mafia wasn't it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. I called them gangs earlier, but in the book they're referred to as clans. So there's these collections of, of clans that, that run the um, the vampire underworld. And my initial idea, as I said, was that there was going to be one big clan that ran everything, and that Joe was outside of. And and I called it the the coalition, which I actually chose that name. This was two two thousand when I was first writing this, so this was well before there was a, a uh, before the coalition was a uh, popular reference to any kind of, that had any kind of political weight to it. But my idea was more of this kind of monolithic bureaucracy as, a, as opposed to a, to a mafia. 
And uh, I just, you know, I like the idea that there were people running things and, you know, as a counterpoint, as opposed to just a bunch of vampires running around. And this, you know, also suited the whole, you know, if your hard, hard guy is going to be out, an outsider, he needs to have something to be outside of. And then, uh, like I said, it became more interesting to have people working in op- opposition to this coalition. And uh, the first group that occurred to me was the society, which, you know, is the, this clan of politically correct hippies and anarchists and feminists and operating out of the East Village who are, who, who are happen to be vampires. So just trying to create those natural oppositions, I actually do have a small clan in the back of my head based in Little Italy that I haven't gotten to use yet that I'm hoping if I get to do a third book that I hope to inter- inter- introduce that will actually be, you know, a mafia, a ma- specifically mafia-based thing. Your novels feature a lot of torture, which is in, <sighs> which is in the news of late. And I'm wondering, is, is it just because you like to write about torture or are we are you getting just a, verging into the political? I don't think the political is, is there very consciously in any of the books today. The, the, there, there are political references in the second, in the second Joe Pitt book, which, is, which I have written, that are conscious and are overt. I have a, a, a reference to a vampire settlement being uh, somebody referring to it as the vampire version of the Gaza Strip. And I have a vampire talking about a character being taken from one place to the other and referring to that process as rendition. The rendition was, the, and, and it's not, I'm not necessarily trying to, with those specific references in this book that is yet to be published, it's not necessarily to say something, but it, it, but this is part of the dialogue in, you know, in, in our world today. I like the idea that these things would be reference points within the vampire world as well, that they would be aware of current events beyond their own lives and reference them. And that was more how I wanted to use them. With rendition, it was specifically when I, the first time I heard the phrase extreme rendition, it just stuck in my head because it was, it was just a real powerful combination of words. And then you know, when I looked up the dictionary definition of rendition and saw some of the sub-definitions and whatnot, I just thought it was a, it was a very potent word, and it and it applied it it just applied very well to the situation I was writing about in the book. So I wanted to use it. Likewise, with the Gaza Strip reference, it was you know it was very easy to apply it to the situation I was writing about in the book. The general use of torture in the in the books, once again, it it, it has something to do with the way. I deal with violence and think about violence. I, you know, it started in caught stealing. You know, the first time was there's a, a really over-the-top, brutal torture scene in that book where um, where the protagonist has surgical staples ripped out. And I, it wasn't planned. It was one of those things where I hadn't, I hadn't had him, the character, to have surgery intending to have him be tortured later. I got to the scene where I wanted, what I wanted out of that scene was I wanted something just horrific. You know, I wanted something completely horrific that would drive a character completely just bonkers and, you know, out into the street and just something really awful. And I, and that's when, then I was like, oh yeah, he just had surgery. I could, I could do this. And then it just, once I started actually thinking about what that experience 
might be like, then, you know, the scene got longer and more detailed and more awful and there were more fluids and, you know, more screaming and, you know, and stuff like that. And and just pretty much the, the same with all of that stuff. I, I don't, you know, even though I drop the humor in to these scenes, um, I don't want them to be, uh, I, I, want, I want, part of the reason that they're so graphic, part of the reason that, that I deal with the violence like that is because I want it to, there to be something about it that's horrific. And I think going back to what you're asking about the humor, that may be an aspect of it as well, that, um, that the humor provides a little bit of contrast to that and, 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 and heightens it to a certain extent. And, and like I say, I'm not, I'm not saying that I do that consciously, but it's very important to me that the violence be something that's flinch-worthy. I know for some people have told me that it's just entertaining, that they just, you know, they just get their socks knocked off by it. And, and you know, you don't, always, you don't always produce the effect you want to produce in everybody. Matter of fact, you, you never produce the effect you want to produce in everybody. There are always going to be people where you're, you know, what you're writing suggests something other than what you, you're hoping for. But, uh, but that's kind of what I'm gunning for, particularly with, when, with those scenes of really horrific graphic violence. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, people need to blink, you know, or have some kind of reaction to it. Or, or when, when people tell me that they read the, the torture scene in Caught Stealing, that they have to put the book down for a minute, uh, I'm not, you know, pumping my fist in the air. Yeah, gotcha. But I, I feel like uh, that's, you know, I, I, I hope that, that some people have that reaction to it. And finally, I want to ask you, Caught Stealing was originally issued as a hardcover. Yes. The follow-up, Six Bad Things came out as a trade paperback and was nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Original Paperback Mystery. Well, why, thank you for mentioning that. And <laughs> Already Dead was also issued as a trade paperback. Yeah. I'm wondering, is there a marketing strategy in terms of issuing these as trade paperbacks in that it puts makes them as eligible for awards that they might otherwise not be eligible for? Do you know well, that? Yeah. I can answer this question. The, let, let me do already dead for because that's the easiest, shortest answer. The already dead was just simply sold that way. That was, you know, that was when the contract that I signed was for was for a trade trade paperback contract. So, so those books were already intended, always intended to, to come out as trade paperbacks. And part of that is just that, you know, unless your name is Stephen King, you know, you don't hardcover horror just really doesn't get done. Stephen King, Clive Barker, I'm sure there are a couple other guys out there. It's hardcore genre fiction, and that stuff is read in paperback. That's you know, the buyer is tends tends to is a is a paperback buyer. You know, they tend to read a lot of the stuff. They buy a lot of books. They buy a lower price point, and that's for the reader. And then. then because and also because these books are very specifically, they're set in the East Village in the bar scene and whatnot. And the thought was that these books will will uh, appeal to a younger, more cash conscious reader as well. So those books were always going to be trade paper. With the thrillers, initially, Caught Stealing Six Bad Things were both meant to come out in hardback. And what happened there was initially it was it was just an issue of commerce. Caught Stealing had a had a very strong initial print run in hardback, but did not sell. So when they came, when Six Bad Things was, and this is all very businessy and, and probably tedious for a lot of people, but when Six Bad Things was taken out to the to the booksellers and they were asked to place their orders, they were reluctant to carry that many of them because they had ordered so many caught ceilings and it had not sold. At that point, it was 
really a matter of my publisher sitting down and saying, well, do we push the bad things as a hardback and hope for the best? Or do we maybe reconsider our strategy because trade paperback does sell to a, to a different audience than hardback does? I thought that it was the right choice to make. I was a little disappointed that it was a choice that was made at the last minute, but it, it has seems to have paid off. The initial print run for Six Bad Things was considerably smaller than the run for Caught Stealing. However, it's, had, it's now had three printings. It was nominated for the Edgar, and if it had come out in hardback, and where, in which case it would, it would have been eligible for Edgar for the best book of the year. The truth is, the competition would have been much stiffer, the standards are different, and it probably wouldn't have gotten that nomination. I don't think awards were a consideration when they made the choice, but it certainly seems to have helped. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that my work is probably, at least these books are probably better suited to a trade paperback audience. To an audit to a reader that is that, according to the demographic, tends to be a little younger, tends to have a little less pocket money, tends to be a little more adventurous about what they're willing to buy, and it also means that for the folk for folks out there who are really set in their ways and and uh, maybe have a little more money, uh, they'll they're more inclined to take a chance on a book that costs twelve, thirteen books as opposed bucks as opposed to a book that costs. 21 to 25 bucks. Uh, so the short answer to this is pure commerce. Um, this was ultimately a money decision, but it, see, it really seems to be working out. And Cod Stealing has sold much better in trade paperback than it did in hardback. So it seems to be something that's working out. And, I'm, and in, it, oh, it, was, it was rough the way it actually have, went down, but over the long run, I've been very pleased with, uh, with the decision. We've been speaking with Charlie Houston. He's the author of Caught Stealing, Six Bad Things, and Already Dead. Thanks for speaking with us, Charlie. You bet, man. Glad to do so. All right, thanks.